Again, we thank each and every one that responsible for leading us in worship this morning with music. As always, everyone does a, a great job. So we thank the Lord for all of the preparation that goes into leading us in worship <coughs> through song. <clears throat> Just one more reminder, there is, uh, this will be the last Sunday that the volunteer sheet is in the bulletin. We've accumul accumulated a number of them. We will be going through those over the next few uh, weeks and sorting those out. We, there are areas that, that, uh, where we need some help, so please, uh, if you haven't filled those out, please do so today and uh, place them in the office, or you could actually place them here in the offering box if you'd like, and we'll sort those out. It is good to see you in the Lord's house, along with those that may be joining us via the internet. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3? 1 Peter chapter 3. We have been looking at verses 15 through 17. And this morning, our goal is to complete these verses, a ready faith by a reliable conscience. So I want to read, beginning actually in verse 13, and read through verse 18, because uh, uh, obviously they are consistent in, uh, uh, in the Word of God. There are no chapter or verse divisions, so it's important to remember that. Peter is writing to... Uh, a group of uh, sojourners, he calls them, or pilgrims or aliens. Basically, these are men and women with families that are scattered uh, abroad, Asia Minor. The Roman persecution was just beginning in earnest uh, toward the uh, Christian church. So he is writing um, about 64, 65 A.D., somewhere in that time frame, uh, shortly before he and his wife both would be crucified. So he is encouraging them about suffering, and one of the things that he is writing now is that we are to do good through evangelism, for giving a testimony to the ready faith that we have. And so in verse 13 he says, he writes, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. This is the seventh time that a form of the word suffering is found in 1 Peter. And this is interesting because he, here he is teaching us that when we convey our faith to a lost and dying world, we're going to suffer. And so that's the reason we need to prepare to give a defense. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, prepare our hearts this morning to receive the word, prepare our minds to understand the word, prepare our feet to be prepared to take the gospel, indeed, of Jesus Christ, the good news, and indeed it is good news, to a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. First slide, if you would, Brother Jeff. So in these passages, uh, actually beginning back in verse 13, but primarily in verses 15 through 17, Peter is defining three principles of a ready faith. We've already examined the first one, uh, a need to be ready to answer we are in the middle of looking at the second one, which is a reason for hope. And then uh, along with that, we'll close, it, uh, close out a reason for hope this morning and look at a reliable conscience, what he speaks to us in verses 16 and 17. Specifically, 
he is addressing, or has been addressing, apologetics, and we have added the term polemics. So over the past couple of weeks, we've looked at apologetics, which is the task of giving a reasoned defense of Christianity in light of objections that are raised against it and also offering positive evidence on its behalf. Now, the second part of apologetics is polemics. And the reason for the hope that is in us leads us to be uh, individuals that understand that today truth is not thought to be objective. And we're going to define that as we go through here this morning. Uh, it's considered to be subjective, and there are many reasons for that. Apologetics is given uh, a reasoned defense of Christianity, and polemics is the task of criticizing and refuting alternative views to the Christian faith. And so we're going to spend uh, uh, part of the message this morning looking at the side that polemics plays in our conveying faith. Now, remember that both are necessary in order that we positively define the Christian faith as a reason to faith and also to criticize and repudiate a view of the world or a worldview, we're going to talk about that also in just a few moments, that is contrary to Scripture. And Peter goes into more length and detail on this in 2 Peter chapter 1. So turn with me over just a couple of pages to 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, we're not going to, to exegete the scriptures here. We're just going to read them. When we get to 2 Peter, we'll spend more time on what Peter is writing, writing to the same group of people. And he says, verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter, who was a fisherman, he certainly did not have the educational background of the Apostle Paul. But here Peter understands that Scripture is reasoned. And he is conveying this to individuals that some of whom may have been highly educated, most of whom were not. And so he is sharing with them this truth. We didn't devise the fable of the resurrection. Verse 8, 17, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice. This is on the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was Peter, James, and John were there. Peter heard it. He was an eyewitness. He was an ear witness, if you please. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. It's been signed, sealed, and delivered. It's been confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretations. The Lord is not going to give you, nor is he going to give me, an insight into Scripture that for thousands of years others have missed. If it is new, it is not true. For prophecy never came by the will of man, and if you read the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, you will find that that is true. John the Baptist didn't have a choice as to whether or not he was going to be a prophet. And others. Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, polemics means we have to repudiate worldviews that are contrary to Scripture. All truth is God's truth, and no truth is any more objective than the Word of God. Now, this is nothing new. We've been looking at the book of Exodus on Sunday night. And in Exodus chapter 5, Moses is standing before Pharaoh prior to any of the 
plagues taking place, and Moses tells Pharaoh, he says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Thus says Yahweh, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh's reply is, Who is the Lord? And why should I obey his voice to let Israel go? I don't know this Lord, and I'm not going to let Israel go. So this worldview of Pharaoh is as old as antiquity. From Exodus 5 through 10, which we've been looking at on Sunday evening, Yahweh deliberately and powerfully demonstrates that Pharaoh's subjective view of the truth of God is a no-win proposition. Now, that was true for Pharaoh. It's just true this morning. If you're here and you do not know the Lord as Savior, perhaps you're listening and watching via the Internet, I want to remind you of that. Taking a subjective view of the truth of God is a no-win proposition. Yahweh seals Pharaoh's fate with the historical evidence that is found in the Word of God. He focuses his attention. He, God, focuses Pharaoh's attention on the very real fact of the plagues. So the, the subjective rejection of Yahweh led to the objective power of Yahweh proving to Pharaoh who he is. Same thing applies today. Next slide, if you would. So here's the thing. Facts speak for themselves, or they should. Facts are friendly. We used to have a general manager where I worked that would say, you know, give, bring me the facts. Facts are friendly. So facts speak for themselves, and folks, and I include all of us in this uh, summation this morning, folks pride themselves when they are presented with two opposing worldviews that either viewpoint with the most evidence, with the most facts, will support their claims, will support its claims. So we're going to define worldviews as we go through here in just a moment, but I want you to frame... Uh, when we talk about worldviews, I want you to look back over your life now. And most of you, most of us, not all of us, but most of us subscribe to a worldview that our parents had. Not all. So I ask you this morning, and remember now, I had parents as well. And my parents loved the Lord and saw to it that I was in the house of God, but they, still, they were still sinners. And subscribing to a parental worldview that is opposed to the Christian worldview is dangerous. People do not believe facts, uh, things rather because facts demand it. Not today, anyway. People believe because their worldview demands it. Opposing worldviews interpret the facts differently. That's the reason I read Second Peter chapter 1, those verses. We didn't devise cunningly. We didn't make up these things, Peter said. And no prophecy of Scripture came by private interpretation. These things are known. God's given to them, given them to us so that we may know them. You will know the truth. That's empirical knowledge. That's objective, not subjective. This was the case in Moses' day. It's the case in Peter's day, and it's the case in our day. Well, that's just your interpretation. That's a different worldview. The way we look at the world. So we present objective facts with apologetics. That's basically what Peter's doing, not only here, but 2 Peter chapter 1. 
And also in 2 Peter 1, we refute subjective facts with polemics, upholding Christianity against the ideologies of secularism or paganism. And believe me, both of those are alive and well on earth today. Paganism has not passed into antiquity. It is still alive and well. It's just alive and well in America today. So <clears throat> we ask a question. Can the evidence for and against Christianity be evaluated in a non-biased or neutral manner, proving to the critic the truths of Christ that is satisfactory to them? Well, we'll talk about that over the next few Minutes. So we're going to define two worldviews for you. Now here's the thing. W.T. Jones, a number of years ago, who was a theologian at an apologetics conference probably about 50 years ago, who when asked to define his worldview, he said this. The differences of opinion of our worldview reflect differences in our own worldview. In other words... None of us are consistent in our worldview. That is one of the reasons that the Christian worldview must be rooted and grounded in the Word. It keeps us from going off the deep end in one area or denying Scripture in another area. Now, Christian worldview, a couple points on this. And is, this is brief. I mean, there have been uh, tomes written about Christian worldviews, but this is brief. An unbeliever and a believer think according to their respective worldviews. Each one of you here this morning, myself included, thinking according to a prescribed worldview that, that we learned. We either learned from my parents, we learned in school, we learned through education, we learned through trade. Hopefully, we learn through the Word of God, but we learned it. It's a learned behavior. You've learned a doctrine of worldview. A Christian worldview demands that truth is objective, that truth can be known, and is determined by a Creator God who revealed Himself in nature. And scripture, not just nature, nature and scripture. That's important. Next slide. In the Christian worldview, the ultimate standard by which truth and reality are known is God himself. It's not my mom, my dad, my grandparents. It's not a good teacher that taught me, although good teachers are necessary. It's not the notes from my study Bible. It's not the notes from your study Bible. It's coming to know God himself. Knowing God, the great book by Jim Packer. God created all things. He knows all things. And he revealed some of this knowledge, not all of it, obviously, but some of this knowledge in nature and in Scripture. It is knowable. When presented with a truth claim, the Christian is obligated to measure that truth claim by God's clear revelation. You're obligated. I'm obligated. Why is it true? What makes it true? Does God say it's true? This doesn't real, rule out the, youth, the use of reason or perception. We talked about by clear uh, and uh, uh, definition last week in looking at the uh, Westminster Confession about the articles of Scripture. By deduction. By reason and deduction. This doesn't rule out the use of reason or perception. 
But the uses of those tools must finally be scripturally justified. That is our basis, basis for faith. That is our ready faith. That is a reasoned faith. Now remember this, the gospel didn't begin when Jesus died. The gospel began all the way back after the fall in the Garden of Eden. And it affects all our faculties. All of them. That's the reason that God revealed himself through his infallible word. He knows we are weak. He knows we're inconsistent. We're like waves that are tossed to and fro with wind and current. We're like fruit that ripens and then sours and rots. And so the Lord knows this. And in the annals of bygone history, the Trinity determined knowing the fall was going to take place to institute the good news of Jesus Christ. Now that's a worldview. And you can't change that because that leads us to understanding our sin nature. A Christian worldview can be known and it's determined by its final standard for truth, which is scripture. You don't become scripture without the word. Excuse me, you don't become a Christian without the word. That is essential. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's a brief definition. There are many, many other types that go into detail on Christian worldview. Now let's look at some alternative worldviews. And for that, let's go to Romans chapter 1. Now, Paul defines the gospel worldview in chapter 1 and verse 17. Look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, <coughs> for it is the power of God, <coughs> excuse me, to, uh, to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For, he says, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. This is the height of who God is. And notice that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. That's the purpose of the gospel. It reveals to us that there is but one person outside of creation. God is not, God is not, pan, we don't believe in pantheism. We don't believe that God is in his creation. We believe God moves into and out of his creation at will. He is everywhere. He's spirit. So God is separate from what he makes, yet he can dwell in believers. Now figure that one out. Noodle that for a little bit. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. God wants his creation. That's part of the natural creation of God's part of his revelation. God wants his creation especially you and I. We are made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, although that has been corrupted by the fall. God wants humans to love his worldview, how he looks at the world. In other words, he wants to be loved and worshipped as the only God. He wants us to understand that we are enslaved to sin. He sent Jesus, who is the God, 
became the God-man incarnate, who reconciles you and I back to the Trinity. He wants us to understand. He wants us to celebrate that. He wants us to proclaim, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he wants us to understand that his righteousness is revealed in faith alone. And here's the takeaway. His is the only eternal worldview that matters. Not mine and not yours. Not my mom's, not my dad's, not my teacher's, not, not the government's, not Congress's, whatever. His is the only one that matters. Next slide. Let's look at or define alternative worldviews. Now, we could spend literally months, if not years, doing this. So we're going to try to make this as brief as possible. Unbelievers operate by one of the countless variations of a natural worldview. You talk to unbelievers, and unfortunately you talk to some that profess Christ, they'll give you all, all manner of, well, I think this, I think this, I think this. In other words, the final standard which a person appeals to in order to determine what is true and what is false reveals their worldview. And this applies to almost everything in life. It applies to our education, it applies to our skill sets, it applies to who we fall in love with, it applies to who we marry, our family, and so forth, it applies to money, it applies to job, it goes on and on and on. It permeates our thought processes. An unbeliever's final authority or standard for knowing the truth is reason, empiricism, supposedly, because Empirical science teaches you that we can know certain things and not know certain things. <clears throat> but sometimes it also appeals uh, to intuition or feelings or some other standard which finds its end in themselves. And so why is God not worshipped? Because self is the greatest idol. Now this too is defined in Romans 1. It's defined in verse 18. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. Righteousness is revealed in the gospel. And the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, things that are unrighteous, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's the definition of a worldview that is not rooted and grounded in Scripture, the beginning of the definition. He spends the remainder of the chapter going into great detail talking about alternative worldviews. We studied this a few years ago when we were preaching through First, uh, the first chapter here of the book of Romans. For since the creation, it says, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Ignorance is not a plea to God for choosing your own worldview. Because he's revealed himself in the gospel and he's revealed himself in wrath for his attributes, and look at verse 20, are clearly seen. What can be known of God are his invisible attributes which become visible through his revelation.
Only Jesus, who is the God-man, God the Son, only Jesus is in the image of God or the morphe of God who in these last days, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, spoke to us by Son. It becomes visible through the Word, through Scripture. In other words, what God has made can be empirically understood, and what He in Jesus has redeemed. Two things. God have the creation. And because of the creation and the fall, you've got to have redemption. Not just creation, redemption. So that is essentially the beginning of a description of an unbeliever's world view. Next slide. Now, true knowledge cannot be known apart from knowing God. Now, you can be smart, you can be highly intelligent, you can be well-educated, but true knowledge and wisdom is not known apart from knowing God. And Paul talks about it here. So what's the strongest evidence for the Christian faith? Peter's conveying this to individuals that are suffering because of persecution. What's the strongest evidence that you have hope, he's saying? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, how do you know what the good news is? Well, somebody may tell you, which is good. Basically, that's what Peter is saying. However, they learned it from somebody, or they read it somewhere, and... They read it from Scripture. Creation is the natural revelation of God. But no one is ever saved from believing that God is creator alone. And the Bible is the supernatural revelation of God. It records God's history and redemption. And it records man's history of suppressing the truth. by exchanging the glory of God. Notice what Paul writes here. So he goes on to say in the latter part of verse 18, who suppress the truth, hold it down, weigh it down. Sometimes I read the paper in the morning while I'm eating breakfast. <clears throat> usually during warm weather uh, out on our deck. And sometimes the wind's blowing. And so I will need to take something. It may be uh, a coffee mug or it may be water or something and put that. I suppress the paper from blowing away. And if there's enough mass there, enough weight there, it won't blow away. That's what we do. Because we want self as God, because unbelievers want self as God, they suppress the truth. That's an alternative worldview from what the Scripture teaches us. Christianity is true because it can be historically verified that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. And no one is ever saved without believing the gospel. Not creation, but redemption. Now, here's where the rub comes. The unbeliever is predisposed because of their worldview to be skeptical of the claim because his worldview says the resurrection cannot occur. Empirically, I've never seen it. That's what Peter's saying in 2 Peter chapter 1. We didn't make this stuff up, folks. We were eyewitnesses of what took place. Now look at verses 21-22 of Romans 1. Because although they knew God, 
They did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. But became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Because, as John says, men love darkness rather than light. Professing to be wise. Oh, <laughs> does that ring a bell today? Professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. Now this is the strongest indictment. Paul is writing to uh, a church in Rome that was primarily had Hebrew people, Hebrew believers, but there were also some Gentile believers too. We know that from from chapter 16. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. They weren't thankful for the grace of God. Remember, grace, the world is no friend of grace, and most worldviews are no friend of grace. It's merit. It's performance. What can I do? Professing to be wise, they became fools. So what happens if an unbeliever is convinced by history that Jesus died and rose from the dead? Because sometimes that does happen. He's accepted the resurrection, but does that mean he's born again? Well, we know from Scripture that it doesn't mean that because Satan himself believes in the resurrection, but has not changed it. Their worldview suppresses an understanding of the resurrection in the same manner that the Bible does. All we need acknowledges that about 2,000 years ago, a natural aberration took place in the empirical world, and a man, certainly not the God-man, but a man came back to life. And many people believe that. Is their lifestyle, is their worldview consistent with, with all of Scripture? Next slide, Bill. But he doesn't have to claim or subscribe to the deity of Christ. Or the validity of the Word of God. All he need think is that in history, without the Bible, there's some record of perhaps Jesus of Nazareth being witnessed and seen. They've not yet been exposed to their nature of sin. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And the need for salvation. Last week we quoted Luke 16.31 where Jesus said, He said, if you don't believe Moses and the prophets, He said, neither will they be convinced though one be raised from the dead. This is what he meant. If you're not going to take the supernatural revelation of the word, you're not going to be convinced, though you have numbers of apostles writing the New Testament of the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Peter's conveying this. Your hope is in that resurrection. Your hope is in that gospel. Your hope is in sharing this with others so that they too may subscribe to God's worldview. The unbeliever's worldview suppresses God's truth. Another word for suppress is just avoids. Avoids. Unbelievers may have accepted the evidence, yet they have interpreted in in a way that supports their worldview. And we do this too. Christians do this as well when presented with the evidence for alternative worldviews. And we suppress it. We need to be open to listening, but we need to suppress it because it's not in line with the Word of God. And we also, as Christians, do this with scriptures that we don't like. Romans 1 is a powerful scripture. Some people don't like it. Some people don't understand it. We substitute intuition. 
Okay? You just saw that in their alternative worldviews in lieu of a ready, reasoned faith. It's important that we give ourselves over to the truth of the living God. You see, the mere presence of evidence doesn't convince a person. The Lord knows how many, it's, it's no telling how many suits or how many trials today take place with, without empirical evidence. The preponderance of evidence. Well, there's enough, there's a, sometimes there's just enough hearsay to convict a person. How many times have you heard of individuals that have been incarcerated for years and then the DNA evidence is discovered and these people were not guilty at all? So the mere presence of evidence does not convince a person. So do we think that there's a neutral position that we can take as a Christian? when we talk to an unbeliever and we can try to bring some type of uh, clarity to, the, to this and do we think that the unbeliever is going to understand the evidence of scripture in a similar manner that we understand it? No, because we have within us the spirit of God. We didn't understand it either. We didn't subscribe to it either until the spirit of God taught us through the supernatural revelation of God. When we disregard arguments for Christianity that are based in the Bible, when we allow individuals to subscribe to the supposed subjective lack of truthfulness in the Bible, which is a fool's errand, then there's no neutral position, folks. No neutral position. We don't present the gospel from a neutral position. We present the gospel through the word by the power of the Spirit of God in order that people be convinced by the Spirit they're lost in need of a Savior and Jesus is willing and able to save them. In the final analysis in the Christian worldview, the word of God is either... The, our final and supreme authority, our standard by which we measure all truth claims and ideologies, or we have abandoned that standard for something else insufficient to show the truth that is necessary to believe in God who has created and redeemed this world. The sufficiency of Scripture is sufficient. Lady by the name of Rosario Butterfield. In the 1990s, she was a professor of English at Syracuse University. She was also the coordinator of LGBT, uh, LGBT studies at the university, set up the, um, the uh, mantra, if you please, for. Uh, those types of, that type of inclusion at Syracuse University. She was also in a lesbian relationship. She and her live-in uh, lover, if you please, moved in next door to a man by the name of Ken Smith. Little did she know at that time that he was the pastor of the Syracuse Presbyterian Church. Ken Smith is in his 90s now still living and he and his wife invited both of them to dinner and she was the only one that went she says in her testimony that after about 500 meals in their home and after reading through the bible seven times with Ken He taught her doctrine, he accepted her as a person, yet clearly conveyed the Bible's disapproval of her lifestyle. 
she became a believer because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. She understood it to be true after reading through the Bible and listening to him teach her for seven times reading through the Bible. She understood that Jesus is God the Son. She writes this. If you're listening, say amen. She writes this in a book entitled Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. Can God change my feelings? The gospel story is about change of repentance and belief. She writes, it's not a story about loving you where you are without any expectation of change. It was Ken's teaching of doctrine that God used to convict me and to convert me to himself. She says, the idea that I can remain in my sin and be converted is contrary to Scripture. I said this last week, she writes this, it is a sin to lie, and it is a sin to believe a lie. Now, Rosaria has testified before numerous school boards, and in many, she's been labeled a white, articulate, privileged person that subscribes to the power structure of the exclusive Christian faith. Often that's what happens when the Christian worldview runs up against alternative worldviews. And this is not unique. I mean, that's basically what's taking place here in First Peter. Nothing new. It's what took place Moses before Pharaoh. Nothing new. Oh, we think. You know, often we think we're the only people that have ever read the Bible. Sometimes we think that. But no. Millions, if not billions, have read the Bible, many of whom have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Next slide. So, that's a reason to faith. That's the reason for the reason for the hope that is in you. That's the reason that we are sometimes uh, polemicist and we're critical of other worldviews. Now we need to do it lovingly. Let's go back to First uh, Peter now. Let's bring this to a close this morning. Notice what he says. Verse 16, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ might be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So Peter says, I want you to share your faith. I want you to give a reason, defense for your faith. But you need to do it lovingly. You need to do it based on the revelation of of, the word, and you need to have a reliable conscience. Let's talk briefly about conscience. We've mentioned this a number of times. Now, the world looks at a conscience as an internal witness to moral obligation based on intuition or self-assessment. Now, that would be the definition of a conscience that that subscribes to an alternative worldview. But in the Bible, the conscience is a God-given element in lives of men and women that points to their uniqueness and the creation in the image of God. It compels us to make evaluations about whether something is good or evil. Filter it through the Word. Whether something is right or wrong, filter it through the Word. Whether it's ethical, whether it's unethical, whether it's sin or not sin. That's an understanding of a Christian's conscience. Our conscience is fallen. That first definition, the moral obligation based on intuition or self-assessment. That's what most people do because our conscience is fallen. So we must realize that we cannot depend on an unaided conscience 
without the antidote of the Word of God? Can we make good decisions without that? Yes, we can. But when it comes to deep moral issues, and we're living in a time like that today, there must be an aid, and that aid is the antidote of the Word of God. An unaided conscience is one that is affected by our sin nature. And the influence of worldviews can and will call good evil and evil good. They can and they will call good evil and evil good. Therefore, Peter is writing so the first century Christians in the Flat Creek family, you and I, learn that we are dependent on the Holy Spirit to give us an understanding of the Word so that our conscience can rightly discriminate with scriptural accuracy what is good and what is evil. In a worldview not aligned with God's, with God's yields a hardened, seared conscience which avoids grace and suppresses the truth of God. If we would go back to Romans in verse 28, it says, because of all these things that have taken place in their alternative worldview, God gives them over to their debased mind. And that's God's prerogative. Next slide. Two things here. We need to walk the walk. An effective testimony, Peter writes it here, an effective testimony, and we all want desire to share our faith, it means our consciences are cleared from fear. They're bolstered by faith and strengthened by integrity. When we're asked to give a reason, we cannot live in ways that contradict the hope of our salvation. And we need to talk reliably. We need to be a friend to sinners. That's what Jesus, that's who Jesus was. And he is today. You know, most of you here this morning know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, but we're still sinners. Save sinners, thankfully, but we're still sinners. And Jesus loves us because he's a friend of sinners. Our witness must be conducted in a reasoned way, without offense. Because we must remember that it's the gospel that offends. It's the gospel that challenges. It's the gospel that is critical of our sin nature. It's the gospel that is the good news that challenges and changes who we are. We continue in submission, in meekness, and Peter says, in a righteous fear of the soberness of the situation because the soul is always weighed in the balance. It is not our responsibility to save anyone, thank God. We can't. But it is our responsibility to share faith in a manner where folks can understand it. And sometimes it may take 500 meals and seven times reading through the Bible. But a soul is weighed in the balance. He closes out in verse 17, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Peter heard these, this phrase from the lips of Jesus. We looked at a portion of this last week in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, For it is better that you suffer for well-doing. Jesus suffered for well-doing. Literally, Peter says, God's will, God wills for his people to live faithfully and to do right, even if the response of an unbelieving world causes us to suffer. It did for them, it did for Peter, it did for Paul, it did for Jesus, for literally thousands of men and women for thousands of church years. 
Therefore, it is not God's purpose that believers suffer per se. But it is God's will that we remain obedient and faithful even should suffering result. There has to be a preparedness to understand that suffering is coming. And Peter expands on that all the way through verse 22, and as he writes in verse 18, Jesus suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. So Peter has spoken to a ready faith. He wants us to give a, a reliable answer. He wants us to understand we have a reason for hope and he wants our reliable conscience to be to be sustained to be uh, mesmerized in the word of God that's the difference do you subscribe to a Christian worldview today because Jesus is your savior Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the word. We thank you that you have set it aside in Peter's mind thousands of years ago now to write this to uh, believers so that it would sustain their faith, that it would strengthen their faith. And so our prayer this morning, Lord Jesus, that it would do the very same thing for us. Every person in this world has a way they look at the world. May we as children of God, may we subscribe to the truth of the word in areas, Lord Jesus, that have become increasingly more blended so that we know that good is not evil and that evil is not good. That we lovingly pray for and share our faith with unbelievers so that they too may come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have your sweet will, your divine way in the remainder of this service this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we sing a closing hymn this morning, we're going to give you an opportunity to, if you're here and you do not know the Lord as Savior, uh, we encourage you, of course, this morning to um, understand that as a sinner that you are far, far more sinful than you can ever imagine. The Bible is very clear. If we were to read the rest of, of the middle portion of Romans 1, we would see that in clarity. But the good news is that Jesus is a far greater Savior than our sin. Grace is always greater than sin. So as we sing this morning, perhaps if the Lord spoken to you through the word about who Jesus is and about who you are, that's important too, that you would make your way out of the pew. We can take you to a private prayer room. We can lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or perhaps you have questions and you want to further the conversation. By all means, let me know at the close of the service, and we'll certainly do what we, what we can. But we want you to know that Jesus loves you. This I know because, what? The Bible tells me so. You're here today as a child of God. And the Lord's leading you into the fellowship of this church. Perhaps you know the Lord as Savior and you need to follow him in believer's baptism. We encourage you to do that first step of obedience. As a child of God, perhaps he's leading you into the fellowship of the church through statement of faith, transfer of letter, whatever that may be. We encourage you likewise to be obedient. As a child of God, none of us, all of us fall short of this. Every single one of us. And sometimes we think that we subscribe to to one thing and we perhaps forget something of the word the Lord forgives us for that but he wants us to be strengthened by his word
So let's recommit our lives to supernatural revelation of God found in the Word. What number, Brother Vance? Won't you come?